though, to get back to the oh, motive. motive. yeah. For the so the tape. official motive was a double. I mean, Bugliosi said in his closing arguments that uh, the, the main motive was to ignite Helter Skelter, right, a race right. war. The sub-motive was to instill fear in Terry Melcher because he had rejected Manson. Right. So you're saying, well, then, if it wasn't those, then what was it? Right. All right. If you look at the COINTELPRO objectives, which was to, to um, diminish the, you know, to neutralize the left-wing movement, to make them look horrible, evil, bad, and this is what drugs are going to do to your kids, um, the kind of outcome that this... This, these murders had was to make the hippies the boogeyman. I mean, the biggest boogeyman in United States history. Hello and welcome back. We are on episode 40, but we are on a part two of last week. So if you didn't listen to last week's episode, go check it out. It's about Helter Skelter, Charlie Manson, and we are digging up some truth together because this is all new to me as well as sharing it with you all. What we found out last week was many things. I didn't even think about this and I don't know why. When you get let out of prison, you always are on parole, especially if you're a lifer, like lived half your life in prison, someone you're on parole. So Charles Manson's parole officer is a key figure and link to the CIA, MKUltra, and the fact that Manson was a part of that. Um, And to the degree that he was set up, is high level. It's, I mean, he was accused by the president of the United States for this murder he wasn't even at. And the fact that they use the word conspiracy for his murder is just crazy to me. Or the fact that he was charged for these murders. Conspiracy. Because he, he told these people to go do it. So they weren't, like, they didn't have free will. I mean, come on. And yet they wouldn't even let Charlie Manson talk because he was too he was too smart they didn't even give him a trial and now they have the whole world believing this helter skelter thing because back then the media had so much power and mind you it does still continue to this day the media power it's ridiculous you know it's like a parrot parroting this narrative and then people walk around and i mean just this weekend my husband was having a conversation at, and with two adult men my, yes they might have been gay but it doesn't matter because we don't care. And the conversation was, hey, we don't agree. And I wasn't outside. Thank God for this conversation. But it was, we don't agree with the fact that grown naked men walk around little kids. It's not okay. And all of a sudden, my husband's uh, uh, against all, everybody. You know, he, he started to get name called. Because you stand for something, you shouldn't be called names. It, at all. You should be able to have a conversation with a grown man and both grown men should accept the fact that it's not okay to sling your ding around little children. But apparently that's not common sense anymore. And if you stand against it, now you're a phobic of, of sorts. And that's just where we've come in America. And that's how good these CIA programs are. And just the fact that we're living through one currently as we speak with this psyop of, um, you know, saving the children, the children need to be saved. The children are being trafficked. And that's just a fact. But do we, like, my mind is so torn with the fact, like, do we need to watch the movie to wake up the normie? You know, like, are the normies going to even watch the Save the Children movie that's, 
made from all accounts that I can tell and tied to trafficking. So it's like people who watch the movie are paying for the traffickers to keep trafficking the children. And it's just this vicious circle that we keep going into because they play both sides. And my husband this morning was like, why do they play both sides? And I said, because they always have. It's just like Jim Morrison's dad, who was the guy who did the false flag, Gulf of Tonkin, proven false flag. Gulf, and we've talked about this before, Gulf of Tonkin incident, which started the Vietnam War. And then at the same time, we have the army brat, Jim Morrison, going out to start the counterculture. Well, it's the same thing we got in California. We have Anthony LaVey starting the satanic movement, the satanic temple. He's got Susan Atkins, if you didn't hear my last episode, as one of his vampire uh, rituals chicks who's doing acid and coffins. So she's already partying over there with the Satanist doing acid and coffins and being nuts. She gets accused of murdering somebody and then all of a sudden tries to tie Charlie Manson into it where this then prosecuting attorney, Bugalosi, grabs onto her case, tries to give her, oh, well, we won't put you in prison because she really did do crime. We won't put you in prison for... Um, we won't kill you here. We'll just put you in for life. Well, then she retracts her statements like, you know, I'm not, never mind. I, and tries to say that it's because she's scared of Charlie Manson. No, she just didn't want to do the wrong thing, I don't think. And also knew she was going to be in prison no matter what anyway. So what's the point? I don't, this Susan Atkins, I don't trust. She has a lot of books trying to say she converted her life to Christianity. And maybe she did. I, I'm not here to judge. Like I said, it's not. I just discern what I see. I see that she was very much with Anthony, Anthony LaVey way before Charlie Manson gets out of prison. So yesterday when I stumbled across this information, I, it was funny because, you, you know, the little things lead you to big things and you just got to pay attention. So when I was reading the, you know, little I knew had lies in it with the Wikipedia thing saying all the the narrative we hear everyday life, you know, Charles was this and he had a followers and the followers went and killed everybody because Charles said so and he was this mastermind yet an idiot at the same time. But then they keep mentioning this parole officer and these operations and I'm like, <laughs> and that led me to the guy we opened up with and we are going to listen to some more with his interviews. He uncovers a lot. So let's talk about, we talked about him at the end of my last podcast, but let's talk about him again before I play you this next clip. So just a little recap of last week, we ended with this uh, discovery of Tom O'Neill, who wrote this book about the truth of what really happened with Charles Manson. So Tom O'Neill was a reporter and he was doing a 30 year like update on Charlie and he just started unraveling stuff like I am. And he spent the next 30 years doing this work and basically going bankrupt. Um, not sure if he's dead or alive. I have not looked that up. But before we start, I found this interview with taught with O'Neill. I want to tell you about this officer that I found in this interview. Very interesting interview. Now this guy, I'll play the whole interview. It's about 12 minutes. Uh, he is very proud of himself that he, you know, Tex Watson. And, and I don't know much about Tex Watson either. He doesn't sound like a very good dude. Uh, probably deserved to be in prison. Again, said he turned into a Christian. 
try to get out early and all the things. Um, I feel like the only person that shouldn't have been in the prison for this murder was Charles Manson. Everybody else probably should have been. Um, but Charles Manson was just a pawn. He was the face of, of this, you know, helter skelter and all, all this stuff. It's just poor thing. And I also want to play why he had that swastika because everybody wants to know that too. So we're going to start with those two things. We're going to start with this interview of this cop basically admitting that this was all about drugs and not Charles Manson. And that's what he was doing for basically the, I believe, first few months to a year before they were like, oh, no, Charles Manson, let's blame it on him. So let's play that first. And then I'll play you the clip from one of his quote unquote followers that will explain more about Charlie. Okay, so here we are with an interview with Lieutenant Earl Deemer. He was with the LAPD. Here we go. Hi, is this Mr. Deemer? Yeah. Hi, this is Bill Nelson. I'm an author on the Manson case. Uh-huh. And through research and through hours and hours in archives and files and meeting people, I understand you were one of the people involved with LAPD back at that beginning stage. Yeah. Super. Uh, my book is called Tex Watson, The Man, The Madness, The Manipulation. I've been on TV the last year uh, promoting that book and doing a lot of research and uh, Bully Olsley endorsed it and that doesn't mean anything except hopefully it's accurate. <laughs> I'm working... <laughs> well, he does. I kind of like the old guy. He's got an ego bigger than the earth, but I kind of like him. <laughs> he, he accomplished a lot. I... Um, I wanted to ask you, uh, did you do, if, if my information's right, did you do any original interviews or any any taping with any of the people like Paul Watkins or any of the original family? Mm, let's see. Yeah, I did, uh, in a sense. Not with Watson. Uh, I meant Watkins. You know, the star witness for the state, Paul Watkins? Oh, I think you're, I thought you were talking about Tex Watson. No, that's the guy I wrote the book on. I have no use for that man. Well, I really didn't have anything to do with Tex Watson. Yeah. No, I ran, uh, let's see, I ran the polygraph, you know. Uh-huh. And, uh, let's see, I ran, uh, oh, what the hell's, uh, I just woke up, so I'm trying. Oh, I'm sorry. Th- this is a day of rest, Bill. Don't call people. <laughs> no, no, I, uh, I'm in a wheelchair. I've got a, I had a, uh, ankle fusion, so I, uh, Ooh. kind of out of the picture here for a while. Not playing much basketball, are you? No. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, who the hell is the guy that was married to uh, the, the film director? I can't think of Oh, name. Roman Polanski? Yeah, right. I ran him on the polygraph. Oh, did you? I met him, I traveled with Doris Tate a year ago in 1990, and I raised money and took her to Paris, to Sweden, to uh, England and Germany, and I got to meet Roman for about Oh, maybe 20 minutes. I had a chance to go to dinner with him, but my wife got sick that night in the hotel, and I just didn't want to leave her in a strange town by herself. Most people say, that was dumb. You should have gone. Your only time in the world to pick the brain of the guy married to Sharon. You know? (laughs) What kind of journalist are you? (laughs) Well, I'm still married. Let's put it that way. (laughs) I saw him on TV the other day. Did you? deal with the girls? Did you polygraph them? No. Or any, anything to do with... Any of those girls that uh, you were able to polygraph, really. Yeah. Um, 
I did, uh, see, I was, you know, actually what I could tell you is that, uh, uh, oh, I was more in the, at one time in the early part of the investigation, they thought it was, uh, uh, all drug related. Right. I know that. So I went back to Washington and I went to Massachusetts and I went to Jamaica and mm. I ran different people around the country. Mm-hmm. And uh, essentially what I was doing, uh, what had happened in my case was that uh, I was off on a wild goose chase. Mm. They were, um, they had uh, essentially made up their mind that this was drug related. So all, all my investigation was pretty much towards that. Did you discover the extent of J. Sebring's drug dealing or Abigail Folger and Wojtek Vrgowski? Uh Yeah, in, you know, in, in a sense, yes. Because in later years, about a year ago, Paul Tate, Sharon's father, uh, said to me standing in his kitchen one day, well, you know that Jay was the candy man of Hollywood. Following that... I, I ran his butler. Mm. Uh, I can't, well, I wouldn't see this. I have heard his name, but I can't recall it. What about Madden, the guy that was his partner, his business partner? No. Okay. So was Jay the cocaine deal, the cocaine dealer that we hear that he was, the candy man of Hollywood? Well, I couldn't vouch for that, but uh, I've heard it. Mm-hmm. His butler kind of uh, indicated that was the case. Mm-hmm. He was into a whole lot of things. Yeah. Okay, so now I'm going to play you a clip from... Um, this Reagan show, who I think this guy was Reagan's son. I haven't looked this up either. I should. But her name's Sandra Good, and he does a pretty good introduction on who she is, and she seems to know Manson pretty well. Uh, close friends with them before and after the supposed quote-unquote murders. And um, she was a fighter for all things quote-unquote good, I think. But you know, we all have our opinions. Anyways, here's an introduction on her from this show, which again, link will be in the description box if you want to watch the full show. And then she explains the X on his forehead. So, and just to disclose, we'll be hearing this together for the first time. I haven't heard it yet, but I found it. I thought it'd be interesting for us to listen to. During Charles Manson's trial, Sandra Good waited loyally outside the court with her friend Lynette Squeaky Fromm. Lynette Fromm was arrested for attempting to shoot President Gerald Ford. Sandra was sentenced to 10 years in prison for writing threatening letters to executives she felt were ruining the environment. Having served her sentence and time on parole, Sandra Good is in California. She stays in touch with Charles Manson, but she is not allowed to see him. Thank you for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Um, Sandra, one question right off the top. What was and is so compelling to you about Charles Manson? He tells the truth. He's alive. He, well, we're all alive. <laughs> he's lively. Ah. He's animated. He is not looking up to anyone for approval. He's not trying to be anything. He's not for money. He's a natural man, and he knows that the most important thing is the quality of our air, our water, our land, and the fact that we have wildlife and we have something to leave the children. This is our premise. And that's what drew you to him in the first place? Well, what drew me to him was that he was very natural and he was very alive and he played wonderful music, very enthralling music. And he was very truthful. You could count on him. 
Mm -hmm. okay. If he said he'd be somewhere, he'd be there. He didn't lie. Okay, let's see how Charles Manson describes himself and the way others see him. It depends on if you want to keep it on a smooth, go easy level. Or we raise the conscious levels to insanity because I have the keys to the mind. They have the keys to the doors. That's why they keep me all locked up. But let me explain why I'm in handcuffs. Geraldo called a psychologist who had four years of some kind of schooling in his mind. And he said he knew all about Manson. He had met me. I've never seen a guy in my life. And he said that I was using my hands to make Satan signals <laughs> to homeboys. If that makes any sense. Uh, the music I play is powerful and it's frightening. And it's almost what someone would call demonish and devilish. It's almost as druids would be on the altar of. And I have a certain following that are committed to the world and the earth balance of what we call aqua, the air, the water, the trees, and the animals. We're not committed to people because we understand people are not really worth our commitment. They asked about remorse for the murders. And he said, what, what murders? The people that died in Vietnam? The people that are dying in the Amazon rainforest well, right see, now? To me, that's not an honest answer. And he, he knew very well what, what murders were being discussed. Uh, he didn't kill anybody. No, he didn't kill anybody, but he was certainly involved in the killings. And, and whether he did or not, I feel sympathy for the victims. Before I keep going, I just, I just want to emphasize right there. Did you hear what he just said? Well, even if he didn't, they just admitted he didn't kill anybody. But they feel sorry for the victims. Okay, well, that's fine to feel sorry for the victims, but the guy didn't kill anybody. Like, that just drives me nuts just because our justice system's so messed up. And we can all see it now clearly in 2023 that it's a one-sided justice system. If they want you there, they're going to put you there. And if they don't, they don't. You won't. It doesn't matter what crimes you commit because some of the highest up people should be in prison right now. It's selling an illusion, and your minds are hooked it's, it's to the crazy. Hollywood illusion. Your minds are not on Earth. It's not crazy. It's very sane. We were getting back to Earth, and we were trying to save it. Yeah. And if that's destroying the Hollywood illusion and taking people out of the Hollywood illusion and putting their minds back on Earth, so, so be what, it. What did Gary Hinman have to do with Hollywood? That's another story. Gary Hinman had a... Um, a uh, Breach of word problem with Bobby Beausoleil. So, so he lied? Yeah. And he got murdered because he lied? Yeah, there's, there's dope dealing it's, there, and that goes on every day. That's not just Manson. That's a, but that's justification. I have a question from the audience. I'm going to have to say there's a few clips in here where what she says, it does make no sense to me. Uh, instead of just being like, I don't know what you guys are talking about. She kind of tries to justify these murders. So part of me is like, is she a plant? What, what's her deal? But... I do want to share some of the stuff she said because I think it's true and it's good and it's, you know, let, might as well share it. Put it down. Lay it down. So I'm going to, I'm trying to find the part where she talks about the swastika so we can move on from, from her. But I do want to hear what she has to say about it because I've never heard it before and I've always been curious what, why, like I always felt like they, you know, drugged him and he woke up with that and then just had to own it. But we'll see what she says. Are you associated with the Nazi group? Are you for, for a white supremacy to kill uh, the blacks, the Jews, the Hispanic, or what? This is a very serious matter, and you have no reason to kill an innocent woman like Sharon Tate. It's nothing to do with Hollywood. Thank you. 
I've got a question uh, for Dr. Miller. Well, she didn't answer. Victim question uh, for Dr. Miller. Victims can't get justice out of the system that we all pay for. How would he feel? I mean, it, it's real good to sit up there esoterically and say, well, it's the system's fault. We made this man and everything else. How are you going to feel when uh, this lady's mentor decides you need to be taken out or your family needs to be well, taken out? I mean, out? it's the same kind of question. Charlie didn't kill anybody. Listen, let's establish something. Let's establish something. I, 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 think, I think that question oh, was sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. You know... What I'm trying to get across, really, is not to excuse Charlie Manson, or certainly not the lady next to me, who makes no sense to me what she's saying whatsoever. <laughs> right. But having said that, now wait, 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 I didn't, say that, I didn't say that to make fun of her. What I am saying, however, is that it should be no surprise that this sort of thinking emerges from an experience such as Manson had. And we shared in creating that. That doesn't make him less responsible. That doesn't make him less dangerous. I want him right where he is. But we'd best look at what's happening. Uh, my man here says, well, that occurred back in the 50s. I toured Juvenile Hall in L.A. three years ago. They were still hog-tying kids there, 13 and 12 and 14. And look in your average detention center. Look at all the uh, Afro-American and Hispanic kids that are being stuffed in Juvenile Hall here in L.A. It's a scandal. It ought to be closed. And when I ran the system in, in uh, Massachusetts, I closed all these damn places. What do you do with the offenders if you close the, the prison? You treat them with... I'm talking... I don't... First off, I'm not talking about... Wait a minute. I'm talking about kids primarily at this point. And that's what created Manson. He was a kid in this system. He was raped as a 13-year-old. That has some meaning. If your 13-year-old was raped, it would have some meaning. Now, I'm not suggesting we excuse him. I'm just suggesting you work that into your thinking of how we create these monsters. Because, in fact, we do share in, in, in setting up conditions out of which they arise. Look Gary. at Gary Gilmore, sent to McLaren School in Oregon, where they're strapped to iron beds. He himself, his brother, said that's what created him. Sent there for breaking a window in junior high. Manson sent away for uh, uh, running away. We're not talking at that point about violent, heinous offenders. i got to cut you off here. we got to take a break. Um, well, the one thing I agreed about, I was curious about the swastika, and nobody answered that question whether or not you're now Nazi-oriented. Um, and after you answer that question, my statement in general would be, I'm tired of hearing from Charles Manson, and I'm tired of seeing his face every time he comes up for parole and listening to that garbage. I agree with that lady. But about that swastika, right? Yes. I would like to know about that. What, what about the uh, swastika? What was that all about in it's the first place? It's an X on my head. His is a swastika. Though. His is a swastika. The swastika is a very ancient symbol used by many, many cultures. The American Indians used it. The Hindus used it. What did it, it mean to him? Um, look up the ancient meanings of the different cultures, that's, that's and that's what, it, what means. it means to him. What does the it's cross universal. mean? It's universal. Pardon me? What does the cross mean on your The X is I'm X'd X. out of the system thought, and I'm in a new thought for life on Earth. So I looked it up, and this is what I got. So it says, the Zoroastrian religion of Persia, the swastika was a symbol of the revolving sun, infinity, or continuing creation. It is one of the most common symbols of Mesopotamian coins. The icon has been a spiritual significance to Indian religions such as Hinduism, Buddhism, and Jainism. All right. Well, there you have it. Okay. So let's move on now to this guy that uncovered the Manson CIA part of the story because that's the part that's really interesting to me. 
we talked about what this secret war means for America and whether the country can move on until the full history of those times is brought into the light. The FBI's COINTELPRO and the CIA's Operation Chaos were both two uh, projects that were begun in 1967. Both initially began in San Francisco during the same season, the spring of 67, that Masson had been released from federal prison in Los Angeles. And during that period, chaos, CIA operation, had been begun, like COINTELPRO, to neutralize what the pretty much the tops of the federal government of the United States believed was a coming revolution, you know, a youth revolution. Uh, and, and they considered the kind of center point, the boiling over point for all that, is the Bay Area. Tom is a fascinating guy, and I hope you enjoy the film. So, Tom O'Neill, thank you very much for joining me. Oh, yeah, thanks for having me. So, you're an investigative journalist. You're the author of this book, Chaos, The Truth Behind the Manson Murders. And I saw you on an amazing podcast on Joe Rogan where you talked about the book and the process of creating the book and the amazing 20-year journey that you went on right. and what you uncovered. Um, I'm... I'm going to sort of summarize a little bit of what came through. And that I'd really advise people to go and watch that Joe Rogan podcast because I think you, you did an amazing deep dive into the evidence there. And we'll try and cover some new topics here or some, some new sure. parts to get to. But also we'll, we'll obviously have to recap some of, the, some of the kind of basics of the case as well. Um, I'll, I'll start by saying when people ask you to summarize the book, what, you immediately kind of think, oh, no, I, that's impossible. Yeah, yeah, but then I say uh, it's a revisitation of the Manson murders and kind of leave it at that. And I said it turns up a lot of unexpected uh, information. Mm. That's about as far as you can go because it's too hard to synopsize. What, what I found absolutely fascinating about it and also about your performance on that because you were very measured, you were very careful, you were very clear to say what you had evidence for, what you, when you were going into the realms of speculation. But a lot of the topics that you're talking about, are they're, they're the center of a lot of kind of alternative histories of conspiracy right. theories. Um, you go into the CIA's mind control project, MKUltra, you touch on the Kennedy assassination, a lot of the kind of anti-subversive projects of like the FBI, were running during the, the 60s, what I would summarize as kind of the undeclared war against the counterculture. You get a real sense of uncovering as you kind of go through the book. Right. Um, what I'd love to start with is, how was that process for you as someone who was effectively, you were commissioned to do a, an, a, a story about the, the anniversary of the Manson killings, and then you started uncovering all of this stuff, not expecting it. How... What was it like for you to kind of find yourself in this territory? And well, did think, you worry about that? Yeah, I think unconsciously that might have been what worked so well to the book when it finally was published was I was learning everything about those agencies and, and projects that you just mentioned for the first time. And I described through the book narrative my kind of stumbling down those rabbit holes and at first discovering that they existed, but doubting it, 
and then trying to find out more information. So I think the reader kind of, from what I've heard, experiences what I experienced when I discovered it for the first time. And originally, the first publisher of the book wanted it um, written in the third person, not in the first. And I did too. I agree. I didn't want myself to be a character in it. But as the, the investigations, my investigation went on, and I found there were more and more loose ends that I might not ever be able to tie up. The, the only way to tell those stories was to insert myself in the narrative. So I would use the scenes in the narrative because if you couldn't prove something happened a certain way, uh, the closest you can get is catching these people in lies. It's really difficult to tell that. I don't know if you're right, but in the third person, uh, without yourself and your voice in there reacting and, and having the exchange. So I think in the end, uh, the book kind of became as much a chronicle of my journey to becoming aware of this stuff that I didn't know about, this secret history. Uh, and I think that might be what works well, not that it was planned that way, but uh, for the reader to discover the stuff for the first time. And where would you say you've ended up at the conclusion of the process? Pretty cynical. <laughs> you know, a lot more skeptical of official histories, official narratives. I mean, I was always, you know, I was a journalist, mostly entertainment, but I did some crime reporting. So I knew that, you know, there was a lot of skullduggery and stuff, but um, much more cynical than I was when I started out and much less trusting of any kind of authority. Yeah, and I'll maybe sort of just summarize the the Manson aspect of the story and just let me know if, you, if you'd agree with, with this mm -hmm. summary. Um, I'd, I'd say that what you discovered was that Manson was almost certainly protected, uh, potentially informant or even potentially an agent provocateur for certain aspects of government agencies linked to many of the secret projects that were aimed at infiltrating and subverting the revolutionary potent potential of the counterculture. Right. That's good. Would that, would that yeah. be a good good summary? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I could never find a piece of paper, you know, a document from that period stating that. And yeah, I was told that that stuff isn't on paper. But the closest I got to proving that was a circumstantial case of evidence showing that every time he was arrested, he would be automatically released, charges would be dropped, his parole wouldn't be violated. I was able to find out that his parole officer was, you know, involved with these pretty shadowy government agencies at the same time. And then I got people who were in law enforcement at the time, uh, particularly from district attorney's offices who, who prosecuted these cases. And one in particular, a very well-known Los Angeles uh, deputy DA who ended up becoming the head criminal judge for Van Nuys, Lou Watnick who went over all the documents, and at first he was like me. He was skeptical that any of this was going to add up to anything. But after he went through everything I'd uncovered about Manson and put all this paperwork in front of him, as I write in the book, he just said, uh, <laughs> he called it all chicken shit. He said, this is all chicken shit. He said, they should have had him in and behind bars, but he was much more valuable to somebody on the outside than the inside. And then he kind of, I think this was like the first or second year of, my reporting, and I said, well, who? And he said, I don't know. That's for you to find out. He said it could have been federal, you know, FBI, CIA. It could have been local, you know, LAPD, sheriffs. It uh, could have been a number of, of agencies, but he definitely was protected by someone. 
because he was valuable to them. So uh, that's kind of uh, the journey the book goes on to is then I left that meeting to try to find out who and, and, and then I started finding shadowy figures that had kind of been around Manson. I don't know if the, the word enabling might be too generous, uh, but let's just say they weren't stopping him from what he was doing. And they had connections to the government. And this was all just in one to two years between 67 and the crimes in 69 that all this stuff happened. Mm. Yeah, it, that's one of the amazing things is just how short a period we're talking about. Yeah. And when you say connections to government, you're talking specifically about some of these um, secret projects that only were emer emerged and were sort of confirmed in the 70s, I think. Could you could you yeah, kind of outline yeah. some of those? Because we're talking about MK Ultra, we're talking about COINTELPRO, and and chaos. So in '67, well, let's see. Let's keep MK Ultra on the shelf for a minute. Uh, F, uh, FBI's COINTELPRO and the CIA's Operation Chaos were both two uh, projects that were begun in 1967. Both initially began in San Francisco during the same season, the spring of 67, that Manson had been released from federal prison in Los Angeles and immediately violated his parole and went right up to the Bay Area and then was assigned to this um, federal parole officer, Roger Smith, who I write extensively about in the book and interview. Um, and during that period, chaos, CIA operation, had been begun, like COINTELPRO, to neutralize what the pretty much the tops of the federal government of the United States believed was a coming revolution, you know, a youth revolution. Uh, and, and they considered the kind of center point, the boiling over point for all that, at least the Bay Area. Uh, the, the free speech movement began there in 62, 63. That kind of... Um, morphed into the anti-war movement, you know, the anti-Vietnam War movement, and got bigger and then spread throughout the United States. But in 67 was where, you know, the Black Panthers had, had, had become much more um, effective in, in their battle against racism, and, and they were also becoming violent. So everything kind of began there, and then Chaos and COINTELPRO moved to other cities. I mean, they established offices in other cities. The chaos program was completely illegal because the, the um, CIA is not allowed to operate domestically. So from the start, that was an illegal program. COINTELPRO was illegal just in the fact that they were wiretapping without warrants, they were spying, uh, they were actually provoking, as you said, Asian provocateurs, they were provoking uh, Panthers and their rival groups to commit crimes against one another that they hoped would result in, in death and murder, and it actually did. This the CIA program, COINTELPRO, was exposed in I think '73 or '74 when a bunch of files were stolen by activists in Pennsylvania and released to the press, showing um, this uh, really, you know, harshly frightening domestic surveillance and, and agitation operation by the government and. and once the FBI was confronted with it and there were hearings, they admitted to it. And I think they ended up taking responsible responsibility for somewhere between 20 and 30 violent deaths that had been provoked by them. And, and that was the purpose of what, what, what COINTELPRO began was to either 
kill the leaders of these groups and or have them commit, they could be caught and then put to prison. They really wanted them to kill each other because their groups all had rival factions, even within the Panthers. And we we put MKUltra on the back burner, but that's one yeah. of the biggest ones. <laughs> that's a crazy one. Yeah, so MKUltra kind of, when the OSS, uh, which was a United States intelligence overseas operation during World War II, the spying operation, once World War II was ended in, in the late 40s, the CIA was born out of the OSS, Office of Strategic Services. And um, once the United States government learned that the Soviets and the Chinese had developed what they believed was a technology to brainwash people using hypnotism, drugs, isolation, sensory deprivation, the CIA uh, decided that they needed to learn how that was being done overseas so they could prevent it from happening to Americans, particularly captured, you know, Americans who were fighting wars, you know, pilots and that, that kind of thing. So they started something called Artichoke, Bluebird, and then by 1951 to 52, what had begun as a defensive program was reoriented to become uh, from defensive to offensive, to learn how to use that technology against our enemies. They turned it on their on the American population. They started using drugs and experiments on, um, in the early days, they had safe houses in San Francisco and New York where prostitutes working as for the CIA would um, seduce or bring Johns to apartments that were outfitted with two-way, with one-way mirrors where they could be filmed and the prostitutes would dose these guys with LSD. You know, when the guys figured out what happened, they weren't about to charge anyone or go to the police because they were committing an illegal act. And then they started testing on the youth population, you know, first student volunteers, and then they would go out and all that's detailed in the book, but that was entirely unequal because they're giving, you know, mind-blowing drugs to people without their knowledge or consent. And that all got exposed in 73 through 75 in, in government hearings. And again, the public was just like I was. They were apprehensive when the first reports came out by a journalist named Seymour Hirsch. But, you know, it's on the front page of the New York Times and the, the Congress held hearings. And the CIA had to admit that they had this secret illegal operation for 20-some years at that point, but they also destroyed all the records of it, and they weren't able to ever really be prosecuted for it or even held accountable. They admitted that they had done this, but they wouldn't They wouldn't say who they did it to, where it happened. They minimized it, and they also said that uh, it had been ineffective, and they, they wanted the world to think that the whole thing was a crazy lark, uh, and, and what I found out was quite the contrary. It had been effective, and they had learned, they had achieved a lot of the original goals of the program. You know, the main goal was to create programmed assassins, people who would kill without any conscious or memory of being programmed and have either no recollection after or no, no remorse. That just, you know, brainwashed soldiers, the famous Manchurian candidate book and movie, uh, presents a pretty good fictional depiction of it, but a lot of it I don't think is fictional. Mm. Yeah, and you, you make this real in the book with uh, by talking about, I think it's Jolly West? Yeah. Who, who is, you managed to find some evidence that he, he'd always denied being part of this project, but you managed to find right. evidence that not only was he part of it, he was effectively kind of confirming that he had done a lot of these 
yeah. experiments and and that some of them have been successful is that is that fair enough he died about I think, six months before the reporting and he didn't figure it all in my original investigation because I didn't know what MK Ultra was or that it existed it was only within a year and a half that I started focusing on how Manson had learned to control these people to the point that they would go out and kill complete strangers just because he told them to and have no remorse for it. Um, and that led me to the discovery through, you know, there is a public record of MK Ultra, and then these allegations against this one doctor, Jolly West, who um, his real name was Lewis West. Uh, I found out that he had been working, doing recruiting subjects for this program out of the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic in 67, which is where Manson went with the girls during the period that he kind of transformed into this, from this illiterate kind of con man, 32, 33 years old, into this guru who had a following of, within a year, about 30, 40, 50 people who would do anything he told them to do. And um, West died that 97, and up until his death, Anytime anybody said that uh, accused him of being involved in this program, he denied it, and there was never any proof, and he got away with it. Long story short, after his death, I got access to his papers, and you know, search for a needle in the haystack. It took a whole summer in a special collections at the last university he was at UCLA, and I found these letters dating to 1952-53 between Sidney Gottlieb, who was the head of the, the CIA scientist who started um, MK Ultra with. Then, then director Alan Dulles and West not only was a part of it, but he was a principal kind of engineer of how they were going to conduct the experiments, how they were going to conceal them from colleagues, from the patients. And in some of the early really chilling letters, he talked about inducing uh, amnesias in people and sanities in people without their knowledge. And by 1955, two or three years after he started, there was a letter to Gottlieb announcing that, that he had learned to um, successfully remove true memories from a subject uh, and replace them with false memories that were permanent and the subject would have no recollection of being tampered with. And that was really... CIA needed that more than anything else than to go on and, and, and take these experiments out into the field, which is what West also said, that he needed to take the experiments out into the field. At that point, he was, you know, administering drugs mostly to um, people at Lackland Air Force Base, you know, uh, airmen who had committed, you know, little crimes and were in, in the brig or something. And uh, he said he wanted to take it out in the field and do it on human subjects without their knowledge. And this is sort of a leading question because I know what my answer to this is. Um, what was the most astonishing thing that you discovered during your research? Because I'm thinking that the Jack Ruby link, which links to what you were just, just saying, was the, the, the piece that really blew me away. That blew me away too, yeah. And that was kind of, I wasn't excited, you know, because uh, I was trying to keep my focus just on the Manson case and, and those crimes. But then when I went into the history of West, and again, this is all public record, he had uh, treated Jack Ruby after Jack Ruby, who I don't know how many people in, you're in the UK, right, know who yeah. he was, but um, he was the, the man who shot the Harvey Oswald to death, who was the 
grandson of, of President John F. Kennedy in, in the basement of the Dallas police headquarters. Just walked right up to him and shot him to death. Um, Ruby never gave a couple different excuse or reasons for why he killed Oswald through his attorney. And the first was that he wanted to keep Jackie Kennedy from having to come to Dallas for a murder trial that she would have to testify it since she was sitting next to her husband when he was killed. Um, he, the lawyer later admitted he made that up. So there was no reason ever given. Ruby wouldn't talk. After he was convicted, um, his lawyer was able to get an appeal. He fired that lawyer, got another lawyer. And right before he was going to start talking and actually testify to the Warren Commission, Jolly West materialized out of nowhere, went to examine him, and uh, left his um, jail cell and had a press conference and said within the preceding 48 hours, Jack Ruby had had a psychotic break from which he would never recover, that he was presently having um, auditory and visual hallucinations, that he hid under a table because he thought there were people in the room trying to kill him. He told Wes that there were Jews being boiled alive outside prison walls. Um, and if you look at the letters that I reproduce in my book, and uh, you'll see that that was one of the main goals of West's early work was to induce insanity in a person without their, their knowledge. And it looks like when, when Ruby finally testified to the Warren Commission, about six months later, they couldn't use anything he said because he was rambling incoherently. And he never recovered from that psychosis. He died about two and a half years later. Uh, and circumstances surrounding his death, you know, this onset of very fast-acting cancer are also kind of interesting. I don't go into them in my book, but maybe part two. Yeah, I mean, just to recap why that was so extraordinary, I mean, Jack Ruby, th that was always the most peculiar thing about the Kennedy assassination anyway. The thing that just didn't seem to make sense was why would Jack Ruby kill Lee Harvey Oswald? Like, Right. What possible motive was it apart from silencing a potential a potential witness? And then what what was fascinating about your analysis? And I reread that section of the book actually this morning. And you you were very you also talk about that there were people even at the time who were suspicious of of what had happened. That actually there were other there were other people who yeah. questioned what had happened with. So so this guy Jolly West just happens to be assigned to him, he has the psychotic break, and yeah. it, it didn't happen in a vacuum. It's not like you're the one making up that, oh, there might have been something peculiar yeah, about yeah. this. Even at the time, people were saying, this, this doesn't make sense. Well, there was another psychiatrist who was very well known, who was asked by the judge to provide a second opinion. So he examined um, Ruby, you know, within days of this psychotic break, and I found his report, actually, in West Files to the judge, and he said... Um, his immediate uh, suspicion was that Ruby was faking it. And he said, but it was so compelling. But he said he didn't understand because he examined all of the previous, because Ruby was examined by like six psychiatrists for the first trial. And none of them talked about any like delusional behavior or disassociation, hallucinations, none of that stuff. So he said that was his first uh, suspicion was that he would fake it. But he, he concluded that he wasn't faking it. He said, my second would be that somebody had gotten to Ruby 
and somehow given him some type of agent. Now, they didn't know what LSD was unless he was working for the CIA at the time, because this was 1964, 65, and LSD was only really known at that point within military uh, and, and federal experimental programs. But he said, uh, but because Ruby was so protected, he couldn't imagine anybody getting in there to give him some type of agent to do this to him, and also that it had been fixed. It wasn't like a temporary thing. And that's, again, exactly what Wes did. He went in and saw Ruby alone. There was nobody else in the cell with him. And he said in 52 and 53, that was what the CIA wanted him to do, contracted him to do originally because they wanted to do this type of thing to foreign leaders, you know, that were enemies. They wanted to get somebody in there to even try to get somebody to do this to Castro with a, a, a cigar that had LSD on the end of it. Um, so even more importantly, I think, is showing not just the, you know, the circumstantial evidence that West did this to Ruby, but uh, more importantly was that West's boss at the CIA from 1952 to 53, his three bosses were Alan Dulles, uh, Richard Helms, who took over for Dulles um, about two years after, no, three years after Dulles was fired by John Kennedy and Sidney Gottlieb. So the Warren Commission was comprised of Alan Dulles, who, who was selected by uh, Chief Justice Warren, 13 men on the commission to investigate this assassination. Dulles knew who West was and what he was capable of. Richard Helms, who later became the director, um, was the liaison between the CIA and the Warren Commission to provide information. Nobody disclosed to the Warren Commission that one of the psychiatrists, not only the psychiatrists who examined West, because there were about a dozen, but the one who examined him, the, you know, within 48 hours of him having a psychotic break, actually worked for the CIA, you know, experimenting and researching and trying to accomplish exactly what happened to Jack Ruby. None of that was disclosed. It would have changed everything um, if they knew that a, a CIA agent, more. I mean, he was a contracted agent of the CIA, had gotten in there Ruby right before Ruby was going to testify under oath and scrambled his brain. Yeah, I mean, it's, that, that was the, the most extraordinary piece of evidence. What, mm -hmm. what did, how did that feel to kind of, you're, you're, follow, you're following the Manson killings, which is already such a kind of deep, astonishing case, and then suddenly it leads into Jack Ruby and the Kennedy assassination. And yeah. how, how was, what, what was that experience like? But I write in the book that when I had to call my agent, who at that point had been my agent for about four or five years, and in his mind it was three years too many, I should have written the book. Uh, when I told, I had to call him to say that, you know that I've been looking into West and this possible uh, relationship with Manson at the hate clinic and, and how important that is. He said, absolutely. I go, well, you know, I've also proven, because I'd shown him the documents, that West was working for MK Ultra during that period, I said, you know, we can't now ignore West's relationship with Jack Ruby. He goes, what are you saying? And I said, we got to look at the JFK assassination. He goes, no, 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 you can't do that. And then, of course, after 15 minutes, I persuaded him that, you know, I couldn't keep that out of the book. But that probably added on another 10 years of reporting. So it was something that uh, was exciting, but at the same time daunting. You know, and I, I knew then that this was going to be a really long haul and took 20 years 
uh, to do, but it's hopefully mostly behind me now. And what was your conclusion of what the, the, of the big picture of why the Manson killings happened and what the link was to these secret projects? Well, that's the thing, you know, I, I don't really like to say anything that is theoretical on my part. I, I like to present the information and lay out, you know, the facts that I was able to prove and let the readers come to their own conclusion, mostly because I haven't definitively proved that it was part of MKUltra, Chaos, COINTELPRO. Um, I think I make a pretty good case that, you know, the objectives of COINTELPRO and Chaos were to present hippies and, and, and the youth movement that was rising up against the government and demonstrating in the streets and getting larger and larger. And so much so that Lyndon Johnson pulled out of the race because he knew that he wouldn't be able to win in that climate. Um, that if they needed like a propaganda campaign to make these people look crazy and dangerous and completely untethered to reality, well, Charles Manson was a gift because those murders happened in, in uh, August of 69. And um, the original uh, police theories were that they were committed as part of a drug deal gone wrong or some type of ritualistic sex thing that went out of control. But then all of a sudden in December, they hold a press conference and announce that the murders were committed uh, as, as part of a plan to start a race war by a group of hippies, you know, at a commune in, in Spawn Ranch in Los Angeles and then out in Death Valley. Uh, and then all of a sudden on the front page of the papers is Charles Manson looking crazy with his eyes and, and the women followers, you know, uh, who look like, you know, any hippie you saw on the street with beans and long hair, young, you know, nursing babies saying, Charlie's our God, Charlie's our leader, you know, that couldn't have done a better job of dismantling and kind of ruining the peaceful image of hippies up to that point. Now they were dangerous, you know, people stopped picking up hitchhikers, people were scared of LSD and hippies and drugs and free love, and it really, um, well, Joan Didion said famously how it ended the 60s. I wasn't the first to say that, but... Um, so as Charlie Manson's story ended the 1960s, we moved into the 1970s, and so it began. Hey, Carlton. Charles. people. They butchered people. 
true story remains untold until today. I never ordered nobody to do anything. I knew exactly what was necessary to convict him. Whether that was the truth or not, it wasn't my business to decide. It was a religious cult. They were always free to leave. I mean, none of those things are real. Not at the scene. It just boggles the mind. He was 40 miles away when the murders took place. The victims weren't chosen at random. This is where it all connects. The story loses me all over the place. He's not lying about nothing. This thing is so bad. I don't know what you can accept it. As we're finding out, there's many, many rabbit holes that lead around the life that was Charlie's Manson. He passed away in 2017. He left behind some sons, two on record. He was married twice. Um, I have nothing but sympathy for the guy. I don't think that any child should be treated that way. And I, I believe I have laid down a pretty good case for all the different avenues that led Charlie Manson to get the name he got. With that being said, dear Lord Jesus, I thank you for this wonderful, beautiful life that you give us. And I don't quite understand the reason why Charles Manson had to be put through what he was put through and all the the things that, like he said, he has sat there for 40 years trying to figure out and just probably knew way more than any of us about his own life. I just pray, Lord, that we not only get the truth in this, but the truth in all things, that they are revealed, and that the people who have had slaughtered names and the people who live with idols and Hollywood stars that don't deserve to be idolized, that the truth comes out and is revealed once and for all. With this episode, we will likely be leaving Charlie Manson here in the history books, in the podcast worlds. Um, I don't feel like we can cover much more on him, but we will definitely pick up probably a little more on the music scene because, you know, he is tied to the Beach Boys. He's tied to some, you know, so many people sing his songs. He has albums. You can hear them. So anyways, enough of Charlie Manson. <laughs>